The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, I'm happy to be here with you. And um, this day of, well, we, it's a sutta study day, but I, more than a, just a, than a sutta study that as we're going through this material, I'll say more about this in, a, in just a few minutes, but um, we're going to look uh, in depth at these three discourses that according to tradition are, according to Theravada tradition, are the first three Dharma talks that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment. And I say according to tradition, um, we don't really know, but this is how it was passed down to us, so we, um, keep that in mind. And taken together, uh, these they work together, they inform each other. We often look at them individually, but actually uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at them in reverse chronological order, and I'll, I'll give a little overview in a, in, a, in a few moments about it. And as we're looking at these, at these teachings, throughout our morning, um, we will also, at each step, we want to keep it alive and connected to practice. We don't, I don't want the day to turn into a purely theoretical Discussion. We want to understand the teachings, but then keep it alive and bring it back to our own experience and our own practice. And so I'll have us, we're not, it's not a meditation practice day, it's a study day, but we'll keep it very connected to our experience and practice through the day. So I'm actually, rather than calling it a sutta study, which we, uh, that's the official title, I actually consider it a practice day. <laughs> so... Uh, what will work well, what I would prefer for the day is that there may be, there probably will be plenty of times where I stop and ask, does anybody have any comments or questions? But I want to very much invite and encourage that any time, if I'm talking, just raise your hand uh, any time if you have a comment or question. And I think that keeps it, we have microphones here. We're recording this, so... Yeah, to use the microphone gets it on the recording, and uh, that just keeps it alive and and interactive and fresh. So that's that's what I think will be best. We're scheduled to end at one o'clock today. We'll certainly end at the latest by one, depending on how it goes. We may end a little early. We'll uh, take a, a, a break about halfway, maybe a fifteen minute break also. So, any uh, questions or any? Comments before we start? Yeah. Yes. I'd just like to invite people who are sitting back there if they want to move chairs closer and feel a little more connected. Yeah. You're certainly welcome to that. You don't need to, but it's fine to do. Yeah. If you'd like to. Yes, there are handouts just on the corner of the stage over here. If you haven't picked one up, please do so. So let me say a little as people are moving or not, as you choose. Uh, let me just say a little uh, background information on what we're going to do today. The, today is going to be divided into 
several parts. The first part, which we'll keep pretty short, if you look on page one of your handout at the bottom and it goes over into the the next page, these are two-sided copies, um, where I say key concepts. I just want to give a little background information before we look at these suttas. uh, Some of you will be quite familiar with this, but some of you may not be, so we want to make sure we understand these general concepts. They're very, very important. So we'll spend a little time on that, and then we will read together and uh, take some time to understand what in this series is was traditionally the third talk that the Buddha gave, which is uh, generally known as the fire sermon. We'll spend some time on that, understanding it, reflecting it, and then we'll work chronologically backwards to what was traditionally the second talk he gave on not-self, and that's a big topic. And then, really, this is heading towards, as we move back, uh, we're moving uh, back in time to the first talk that the tradition ascribes to the Buddha, which is called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. And this is uh, where he talks about the middle path and lays out the Four Noble Truths. And it's, it's a very, obviously, a foundational discourse. This word sutta, that's in the Pali language. You may have heard the term sutra in the Sanskrit. It's connected to the English word thread, sutra. So anyway, these discourses are preserved in what they're called suttas in the Pali language. So not only are we looking at each of these individually, but when we come, when we finally make it back to the uh, first discourse and the Four Noble Truths, we want to have our understanding of the Four Noble Truths informed by these other suttas to really get to what it's talking about. So you've all, you, I'm, we'll come back to this. You don't have to remember right now, but we often, you know, first noble truth, the truth of suffering. What is it really saying? We want to look at, to really get it. We have to see what's being talked about in these other discourses. It, it will, it can bring a different perspective on it. So that's the way we're going to work through today. Um, that's enough background. Any comment or question about that? Okay. So let's begin. You, um, so at the bottom of the first page of your handout, under key concepts, the first is what's called the three characteristics. Each of these you could spend an entire day on, a lifetime really of, of study to come to understand, because these are our core and what they're saying basically is when we say three characteristics or we consider it to be three we use this uh, pretty uh, I think heavyweight phrase it's three characteristics of existence so that sounds pretty weighty but what it's saying is and we're going to look to see if this is true for ourselves three characteristics of any and all experience. That's what it's talking about. There's nothing within our what we might call inner or outer experience. So it's ourselves and the whole world. Anything that can be experienced are marked by these three marks, three characteristics. So the first one, 
uh, impermanence. And I've put these the poly here. Uh, you may or may not be interested in the poly, but but um, they're there. When we look at the suttas, I've particularly pulled out um, a few key poly terms because they're very important uh, to un- that key to understanding what the sutta is getting at. So we will look at a little of the Pali, and they're listed at the end of each sutta. Okay. Because people, and you'll see people translate them uh, in different ways. One other thing I forgot before we, and then we'll come back to the three characteristics. I've listed on here that these three suttas are available, and there's, there's a website I've listed there, access to insight.org. Um, it's, a, it's just got a lot of, uh, it's a great resource to check out. And one thing I sh- should let you know is the suttas, as I've copied them here, I took the ones that are in the public domain from Access to Insight, but um, I thought there were some, I, I didn't care for a few of the key terms, how the translator translated them, and I'll point out some places where I've actually put in what I think is, is so different teachers in different ways, what I think is, is a better term, <laughs> and we'll look at a range of understandings of the meaning. So if you go to Access to Insight, it's going to be a little different than what's printed here, just to be aware of that. Okay, so these three characteristics, impermanence, in Pali it's anicca. The, in Pali, the C actually has the sound of C-H in English, cha. Anytime you see a C, whether it's one or two, it's a cha, so it's anicca. And I don't know if we need to spend a lot of time on that, but it's basically just saying ourselves as beings, the world, if you will, what we call the conditioned conditioned existence or the world, is all impermanence. I, 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 hopefully we all get that, right? Not just us, but, you know, nothing lasts forever. The earth, the sun, galaxies, everything, right? It's impermanent. That's pretty clear, right? Do we need to spend more time on that? We certainly can. Okay. One thing I'll just say about that, uh, everybody seems clear. It's pretty obvious when we intellectually we understand that. As we come back, keep this one in mind, and we'll point it out a number of times because this teaching on suffering, one of the clues to getting it to really understanding it is that we don't live our lives as if it's true. We understand impermanence. We'll say more about this, but we actually live as if we're going right, to last forever. We'll come back and say more about that. Okay, the second characteristic I actually want to spend a little bit more time on. In Pali, it's dukkha. This is the word that's generally translated as suffering, so when people here that the Buddha says, and we're going to look in the first noble truth. When the Buddha says, you know, really all things are suffering, he's actually using this word dukkha. And it's a misunderstood term, and the word suffering, I think, is it's not the best translation. We're kind of stuck with using it because everyone uses it. And so we will use the word suffering, but we want to understand what's actually meant. If you If you look up the... The Pali Text Society has a Pali English dictionary. It's the standard. And if you look up, it's available online if you're interested in Pali at all. If you look up the meaning, the definition of dukkha, 
at least in the printed version, and this book was one of these, it's not an 8x10, eight, eight it's one of these 11x14 books, small, I think it's 10-point font too, I mean, so it's, each page is packed. The word dukkha has two or three full pages to get to the full meaning. It's not just suffering. The actual, if you go back more to the uh, etymology or the, the root meanings of the word dukkha, it has the meaning of a wheel that's out of kilter. And so back in the, the days of the Buddha, if you were riding in a cart and one of the wheels was out of kilter, you're going to get a bumpy ride. Something's a little off. And so to get to the range of meanings of dukkha, um, it does include the meaning suffering, no question about that. And so it's any kind of dis Ease. I don't mean disease and illness, but a dis-ease or an unease. So you could call that a suffering. Some place where we're not completely at peace and happiness. There's some worry. You know, we can all look into our own lives. And so you may want to take a few moments and just look into your own life. And, you know, how much of your life is really and the more we can pay attention moment by moment. How much of what goes on in our minds, we don't even have to look at external experiences, is some kind of worry or am I okay? Am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? You know, it, it really, for probably most people, I, I don't know if I can say for every one of us, but it's a, sometimes it can be a shockingly high percentage when we really pay attention to what goes on in our minds. So it's pointing to that aspect of being human beings. It's not saying that we don't actually have happiness and joy in our lives. Everyone has experienced at least moments of that. The balance between happiness and unhappiness or suffering is going to, you know, how much we get one or the other is just going to depend on our own circumstances. And that will vary at any one time in our lives. But certainly we all know what it's like to suffer. We have, that's a part of life. But this is saying it's, uh, it's a characteristic of all experience. So even happiness is considered dukkha. Well, how can that be? Because when you're happy or when, you're getting, when things are going great, would you say that's suffering? I, I don't know if that's the... So that we have to be careful there, right? Um, so a better, I think, broader translation could be either... You could say unsatisfactoriness, which is getting closer. We'll see later that the problem is around this idea of clinging or holding on to things. So getting what you want in life, having the experiences you want, is, it's great. It's, the Buddha's not saying push that away or deny it or not have your experience. But if we try to hold on to it because of the first characteristic of impermanence, that nothing's going to last, it's saying even having the experiences you want aren't going to ultimately do it for you or solve your problem. It can provide a happiness in the moment, but things change. Have you ever had a happiness that's stayed forever? No. (laughs) Just one moment, Ted. Can you you remember your... Yeah. Right? So one of the... What the Buddha is pointing to is that our strategy for being okay, for finding our well-being, is 
And we're all doing this as human beings, is setting up the circumstances in our lives to look how we want it to look. Right? I don't know that we're going to stop doing that. Or I don't think it's telling us to stop doing that, but it's just saying that strategy can only go so far. Because even if you could perfectly set up your life to look just like you want it to look, and I don't know that even how possible that is, but say you could do it, things change. If nothing else, what's going to happen to all of us? We're going to die. <laughs> so, um, just one second, I haven't forgotten. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. I just want to, I'm going to, I haven't forgotten to come. You're going to, I hope you won't forget your comment. Because, so, okay. What, what, so even more than unsatisfactory, I would propose a good under, word, if I had to pick just one for dukkha, would be unreliable. Because how much can we control life? And, you know, things happen. And so this is what it's talking about, this characteristic that there's some inherent unreliable or. So uh, this will get clearer as we come back to it. But that's the basic idea. So, Ted, you st- go ahead. Could you use the microphone, please? Yeah. OK. Um, I got stuck when you said the word happiness can cause suffering, but then you said later the the disappearance of happiness is what causes the suffering. I like uh, to stay, I like to use happiness as referring to a particular state of mind. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's where a flag went up. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, I appreciate that. And I, I, it's, it's the disappearance of happiness. And the disappearance of happiness, so that's great that you point that out, and it's important because the disappearance of happiness, so we know it's going, whatever experiences we're having are going to change. That's just bound to happen. And if you don't believe it, just pay attention to your own experience. And it's not a problem if we don't make that a problem. It's the clinging on is, is the real issue. That's getting to the crux of the whole thing. And, and then the other things that cause suffering we consider pleasant, but they're actually, actually um, I call, I consider excessively pleasant, like greed. Right. You know, we look at that as, as maybe a pleasant condition, something that gives us, you know, these excessive positive chemicals, but in the end it causes suffering. Right. And, and I, matter of fact, you're going directly to the fire sermon. No, no, this is great, because the first discourse we're going to look at the fire sermon is going to go directly to what you're saying there. So, good. So, okay about that for now, Dukkha? So, you know, it may be, uh, you, you'll hear sometimes if you hang around uh, Buddhist circles, that people will just use the, the Pali word Dukkha untranslated. They'll just say, oh, that's Dukkha. So... Yes. It might be voice activated. So, oh, it has to be green. Um, and about dukkha, um, sometimes I've heard uh, raging controversies about um, here at IMC. What I tend to hear is suffering exists versus life is suffering. So when I hear people say, oh, the Buddhism, that's life is suffering. And I'm thinking, no, that's not 
quite right. Yes. And I wondered if you could comment on the difference between those two. Well, what I'd like to say is um, we're going to look at the exact, the exact wording of the teaching where that comes from. And I'll just give you the heads up that the Buddha, at least as quoted in the Pali tradition, doesn't say life is suffering. So that's not going to be in that. In the first noble truth, we're going to go look at the exact test. He doesn't say life is. However, we are saying that uh, dukkha is a characteristic of all experience. You could say of all life. But again, if we say all life is suffering, um, I actually, I think that that could be a reasonable statement if, we, if, if what we mean is, as human beings, just part of the human condition, we tend to be caught so much in clinging that, that you could say that creates a suffering that's just inherently in life, sure. But really it is more, you know, a, a really a more, I like to say, life just is what it is. Just experiences are rising and passing away, moment by moment. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. It's all coming and going. And it'll be informed by this third um, characteristic of what we'll call not-self or non-self. And it doesn't have to, matter of fact, um, it's not inherently suffering because what this teaching is pointing to is an ending of suffering. When the Buddha attained his enlightenment. He was still alive after he attained his enlightenment. He taught for um, uh, 40, 45 years. Was he suffering? Or had he reached the end of suffering? Right. So, it's not... I, I, I think of it more as um, life just is. And there's this inherently unreliable or unsatisfactory quality to it, if we're looking to the experience itself for our well-being, if we can start to shift our relationship so that we, we get interested in how we're relating to our experience moment to moment and look to our well-being in that way, shifting how we're relating to whatever's going on, that's what these teachings are going to be pointing to today. That's the liberation that can come. So if we keep that perspective in mind, then when people say life is suffering, they, there might be a, a range of understandings and meanings, but we, that's what we're, this is exactly what we want to get to today. How do we understand the teaching? It really, the whole point we're heading to is how do we understand that phrase, life is suffering? Maybe that's the summary for the whole day. Yeah, Ted. It's attachment to life is suffering. The right. I. In, right. In, if you disappear, if the I disappears, life isn't suffering. Right. I was in a, a, a yoga class where th these students were complaining that the instructor was boring. And I thought about it, and I thought my body didn't notice. <laughs> it was the I that noticed the yeah. boring. So that's really we're getting to where we're these are all sort of uh, setting us up to keep these discussions in mind as we come towards 
the last discord. No, 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 don't don't cut. I'm saying these are perfect. Uh, yes. One word that came to me was a sense of insufficiency. You know, that if we're relying on experience for happiness, it's insufficient. Yeah. Would that be? Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's another, I think, good word. So we, and the way I would put it out there is all these different people having different words and different understandings, different comments. Paying attention to how that all lands for us, which, which way insufficient, suffering, unreliable, life is suffering, do, does, do we connect with that not, not? Which way of understanding is a doorway in uh, to that truth for us? Yeah. Third characteristic, okay, this is the biggie, right? I've got three translations of this poly word, anatta, not self non-self, no-self. I'm okay with all of them, although people can get a lot of distinctions with me, not-self, non-self, no-self. Let's just pause on this for a few minutes, and we're going to spend a lot of time on it in the second discourse. You can see it's called the characteristic of not-self. But, but uh, this is important also. What it's saying basically is, if you go back to this Pali word, anatta, people... It's, it's, it's commonly misunderstood. People take it to mean, sometimes take it to mean that well, you, you don't exist and when you realize anatta, no self, you're going to poof and disappear or something like that. It's not what it's saying. You do exist, right? We're all here. We're not denying that. The Buddha didn't deny that. But what the Buddha is looking at is what's the nature of our, own, of our being, of ourselves? That's what it's pointing to. And so going back to this word anatta, the, the A, that uh sound, is a short A, the uh is a negation. So it's not an atta. In the Sanskrit, it's atman. And looking back at the uh, old teachings from the Upanishads, uh, the idea there is that the deepest, or you could say highest reality it would be similar to what in some of the Christian tradition you would talk about God, say, but uh, ultimate reality is what they would call uh, Brahman. And Brahman is, we don't want to get into this too much, but it's, it's considered in the, in the ancient Indian tradition. And today, you'll hear the term Satchitananda. You don't have to remember all this, but a little aside here just to clarify, Anatta. Satchitananda the sat is existence, chit, consciousness, ananda, bliss. So the nature of this Brahman, Brahman is existence itself, consciousness itself, bliss itself. And it's considered to be eternal, unchanging. That's the kind of the ground from which all the diversity of experience and Everything arises. And it's kind of where we go back to as our home, if you will. And so if we could penetrate deeply to the nature of our own being, what's called soul, 
they would call the soul the Atman. And when that's realized, you realize that the Atman is identical with Brahman. And that's your eternal soul. That's the idea. So Atman in the Pali, Atta. No soul, Anatman, or in the Pali, Anatta. That's what it's pointing to. It's talking to this idea of this permanent, everlasting essence. So we have to say a couple more things to clarify. We're going to look in detail at this in the second character, in the second discourse. Actually looks specifically in, deconstructs what it is to be a human being, and it, it explains this in more detail. It's basically, as you will see, saying anything within our experience that you can know or see or experience about your being is impermanent. It's changing, and we'll look in more detail at that. Right? And it's saying there's basically it's saying what we are is we're not fixed entities. We are impermanent changing processes. So we'll look at that more if that doesn't make sense to you. And yes. That was good. The simplest way for me to look at not self is we can't really understand it con- cognitively. We have to actually practice not-self. And we actually teach our children how to practice not-self because we've noticed as adults that self is selfish. And not-self is not selfish. I don't know if that connects or not. The, and that happens to be the very first step at understanding not-self. And if you look at, for me anyway, if you look at, Gratitude. Gratitude is not selfish. A little three-year-old, when they first learn to not be selfish, they actually have their first insight. What they do is they're taught to not be selfish. So they experience not being selfish. And then, then all of a sudden they notice that not selfish has this feeling to a three-year-old, they can understand this feeling. Have you ever noticed how they do it again and again and again? And it's only when we grow up and develop a fear of, you know, ourselves that we lose this unselfishness. Anyway, I apologize. for. To me, that's the very first step at yeah. not self, yeah. practicing yeah. not being selfish. Yeah. And all of these concepts, you know, are about going back. It's all got to go back experientially, and, and that's why we practice. And so, uh, just one moment, uh, Diana. We, we don't, this one is, a, is, is the real kind of central knot to untangle. But uh, we're going to come back and spend some more time. But just to say for now, every, everyone has a sense of self. You know, that, by the way, is, a, is, uh, is an impermanent conditioned uh, experience, too. We'll say more about it. And it will make a little more sense in just a moment when we look at this next key term. We're going to go move a little more quickly through these now before and get on to the sutta when we look at the five aggregates at the top of page two. Yes. So I actually was going to disagree. Is this on? Okay, can you hear me? Oh, okay. So um, I was actually going to disagree a little bit with what you were going to say, Ted. I was going to disagree with what you were saying because the idea of selfish 
whether you're selfish or not selfish, still implies a sense of I and them. You're right. So it's still an I-ness that is selfish or not selfish or something like this. So, but we'll get to that, I guess, when we're talking more yeah. about anatta and other Good. things. Good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, those three characteristics, if you don't totally uh, agree or get it or whatever, just let that sit. We're coming back to them some more, but I want to just be exposed to them. Please turn to the top of page two of your notes. And the next key term is there's two things there. One's called the five aggregates. In the Pali language, they're called uh, kundas. And then there's what's called the six sense bases. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but they're, they're key to the suttas we're going to look at. And they're basically two different models. They're complementary models of what it is to be a being, a human being. And so the first, uh, just to name them here, there's five aggregates. What it does is it deconstructs ourselves as human beings into five parts. The first one, form, that's your body. And then the, 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 the other four are, are uh, on the me- uh, parts of the mind, if you will. And I'll just name what they are. The first one, feeling in Pali Vedana. That's a very, very important concept. The term Vedana means sensation. But in particular, it's important because of um, all of our experiences, sensations we have are either pleasant, unpleasant, or we use the term neutral in the text. They're called neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We'll just call that neutral. And so you can start to notice that, you know, there's this just flood, just huge range of experiences coming and going all the time, Uh, not just in the body, but in the mind, the whole range of experience. And we often don't notice them. And our conditioned pattern is to grasp onto the pleasant ones, push away the unpleasant ones. And uh, so this idea of being aware that it's an aspect of our experience, these pleasant sensations and unpleasant, is key. So let's just leave it at that for now. It's going to be central in, in the first sutta we'll look at. Then the next, we'll just say quickly, the third one, perception, Pali Sanya. Perception refers to, um, we'll just do a quick experiment. Some of you may have heard me do this before. Um, let me hold this up. Uh, anybody want to say what you see? Yeah. Bowl, pot. Yeah. So people say bell, bowl, pot. Yeah. Yeah. It was a trick question. <laughs> right. And metal. But actually, it's you don't see a bowl. You don't see metal. You don't see a pot or a bell. What's landing on the eye is form, shape, color, shadow. And then we, the brain or the mind, goes, oh, bell, <laughs> makes that into the bell. We're actually creating that experience of bell. I'm not going into like ontologically, is there really a bell out there or not? You know, I don't, that's not what we're, go- we're getting into. Uh, we'll leave that for the philosophers. But um, experientially, as far as we're concerned, we're creating our whole experience of this room of being in here together. It's all created just based on this raw experience. Now, we, it's, it's, we're not doing anything wrong. 
It's just saying it's part of being a human being. So there's perception. And so there's two parts to that. What perception does is perception, it turns out, is conditionally determined. If you ever saw this movie, which was kind of a silly movie, but back, I don't know, in the 70s called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Do you remember any of you saw that? And it was about um, these aboriginal tribes people in um, uh, Australia. And an airplane flew overhead in, in a little single-engine plane, and someone was drinking a bottle of Coca-Cola, finished the bottle, threw it out the plane. It landed, and the, one of the Bushmen found this glass bottle. They'd never seen anything like it. They didn't have a, you know, the perception of what it was wasn't habituated or conditioned by anything in the past. They thought it was set by the gods. And so uh, we could go into a whole big story about that. But it, it, one other piece of perception that's important also is the, the um, aspect of memory. So we've seen one of these before. We know it's a bell so when we see it again, we go, ah, oh, that's a bell. <clears throat> Hear that sound outside? Someone's got a buzzsaw going, right? Well, how do I know that? It's just sound going, right? My mind, through the perception, makes that buzzsaw. So it's, a, it's an important aspect that's creating our experience. That's perception. Volitional formations we're going to come back to, but this is a big one. Um, it's just, it has a number of, I don't want to spend time on it right now. We'll come back to it when we're in the sutta. But it's, you can see the translations, mental formations, volitional effort, determinations, concoctions. It's called sankaras. Mental formations just refers to all of the stuff arising in the mind. Volitional formations, which is uh, will, if you will is one aspect of mental formations. So it's part of that. Um, concoctions is kind of connected with perception in a way. It's where we take experience and add meaning and make it into something. And you know. So if you were, uh, you know, if, if you were walking down the street and someone passed you and they happened to glance at you and you'd never seen them before and you've thought, they were giving you some kind of bad attitude. That would be a concocting. You know, who knows what was going on in their mind? Maybe they, maybe they weren't even aware they glanced at you, or maybe they're having a bad day. There's nothing about you, or maybe they did have a bad attitude. Toward, who knows? That would be where we take the experience and we add a whole meaning and we create whole worlds. You know, and then next thing you know, people get in fights <laughs> about things that have been created. So that's kind of the attitude. And then the fifth one is con- consciousness, which is the, just the pure awareness or knowing itself. Being conscious. So that's the five aggregates. It's a model of what it is to be a human being. So we're necessarily going through this too quickly. These are big topics. You know, if you came here to IMC, there could do a whole five-week series and spend a whole evening on talks on each of these. Because, uh, uh, you mean today? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but we'll be coming back to this. The whole second sutta is uh, on this. So we'll, we'll, we'll give it as much uh, time as we can. The sixth sense basis is the last of these before we get into the sutta. The sixth sense basis is a different model. And what it's saying, it's breaking down 
breaking down our experiences being not in the five aggregates, but in so the six senses here are the five that we normally think of. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and then what they call touch, which is all the range of body sensations. And then the, the sixth sense door is the mind door, because that's another way through the mind where we have experience. Right? We'll come back and say more about that. Uh, okay. It's a different model. Okay, so let's just pause for a moment. Yes. Uh, Yeah, just by way of clarification, in uh, consciousness number five in the model of the five aggregates, are you using it in this? uh, Are you using it in the same sense of consciousness as in the dependent co-arising? Consciousness is often used. Different ways, and I'm just asking for right. clarification. So what we're using here is, right, we're considering it uh, consciousness. So we're going to take a look at that in detail in, in the second sutta. Consciousness as it is uh, conditionally, it arises conditionally dependent. So we're not saying it's not Satchitananda Brahman that this eternal consciousness, that's, if that's what you mean, we're not saying that. We're looking at the nature of our own being. So the interaction between sense input and the, the, the contact with the sex, sense, sense input is consciousness. Not We're, consciousness in Freudian psycho stuff. Right. Consciousness is the interaction of the senses with the knowing that there's right. a and sense. The, yes, exactly. Thank you. Yes. If that didn't, wasn't, if you didn't quite get that, we're going to that right now. So, yes. Are you okay, too? There's a lot of info happening here, but can we go in and take a look now at this first sutta? Okay. So, um, call the fire sermon. This Aditta Pariyaya sutta. Actually, the real meaning is the way of speaking of things as if being on fire. That's what it really means in the Pali. So it's, it's, a met, it's using fire as a metaphor. Okay. So what I'd like to do here is, you can see it's uh, the bottom half of page two and on to page three. It's not that long. What I'd like to do is ask if someone could take, would mind taking the mic and just read just in the beginning part here. And then we'll stop and... Look at what it's actually saying. Anyone care to to read? Okay. Yes, please. Um, We'll read down and we'll stop just before where it says the ear is burning. Thus had I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Gaia, at Gaia's head, together with a thousand bhikkhus. So the bhikkhus are the, the monks. There he addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, all is burning. And what is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition, whether it is pleasant, unpleasant, 
or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrow, with lamentation, with pain, with grief and despair. So let's just pause there. That's a lot. This doesn't quite address the content yet, but I'm just trying to get the historical context. Yeah. The claim is that this is the third Dharma talk given by the Buddha, but he already has a thousand followers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of faith yeah. on their part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the sermon that the most people attain liberation from, apparently. In a single talk. Right. Yeah. So that no, these are good points to bring up. And so um, we won't go off into that, you know, how these were composed and over over time, you know, what may or may not have been embellished and all of that stuff. But, yeah, just. Richard, do you have any sense of the time span between like the first and the third sermon? Was it years or Uh, weeks or months? I can't. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, it may, it, 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 there may be a sense of it in the text somewhere that I'm not aware of, maybe in the Vinaya. One place to look is um, the book, um, The Life of the Buddha by, um, whose book is it? Anonymous, yeah, Yanamoli. Uh, he may have, I think he may have put it together in some chronology. Yeah, Ted. Um, I'm not sure where this information came, but I had actually read that someone said that the Buddha, um, this came fairly soon, and he was meeting a people that worshipped fire, and they were very, very collected, very practiced monks. So it's not like he was, I mean, they, they had practiced concentration, and they were missing one point. And I don't know where this idea came, but what I'd read was that the Buddha thought, how can I get to these people? And what he did is he changed how he taught to each of the different groups. And he came up with this idea of fire. These people were fire. fire. They were fire worshipers. They were were fire fire worshipers. And and there's this idea. We're not going to get into it here. And if you're interested, uh, Richard Gombrich, who's a great Pali, an scholar of Pali and Sanskrit and early Buddhism, has a, a new book out called What the Buddha Thought. It's different from the uh, older book, What the Buddha Taught. This is what the Buddha thought. And he goes into this and he talks about the metaphor, how the Buddha is teaching metaphorically. And uh, he was substituting the, the fire rituals of the, that, that, that they had with, he's saying, well, what's really important is these fires, yeah. So let's take a look at what it's saying here. And then we're going to look and also we want to be thinking from our own experience. Well, is this really true? So here's what he's, burning, what he's saying. And it goes back to what um, uh, this person, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, said about is what we meant about consciousness. Um, yeah, so look here. It's saying, we'll just stop at the, take the first three. I is burning. Forms are burning. And eye consciousness is burning and eye contact is burning. Let's look at those four. 
So this is going back to that sixth sense based model. Here's what the model's saying. The model is not saying there's some permanent consciousness in here that experiences everything that's happening to it. The model's saying that um, we have a sense organ, assuming it's working, which is the eye. There's a vi- visual form, that, something that can be seen. You have to have both of those. And there has, I'm going to skip over eye consciousness, you have to have contact. You know, it's possible, we've all experienced times when your eye is functioning. There are forms that can be seen, but your mind is distracted somewhere else. And you don't notice something that's before you, so the contact isn't there. So it has to be that quality of mental contact has to happen. And when that happens, there is an experience of seeing that arises that wasn't there before. That's considered the rising of eye consciousness is what they call it. Okay? It's, called, it's just the term they use. It's, it's consciousness of through, through the visual sense. And similarly, when we look at all of these, there's what they call ear consciousness. So again, there's not this Richard in here to whom it's all happening. In the moment, assuming my ear functions, there's a functioning sense organ, there's the sound that, that's there to be heard. There has to be contact. So if I'm absorbed reading my paper in the morning and my wife's saying, Richard, Richard, and I don't hear her because I'm absorbed in reading my newspaper, the contact hasn't happened. But if there's contact, then it gives rise to the experience. It's a consciousness, an ex- conscious experience of hearing. And in that moment, ear consciousness is arising. So in this model, it's saying there's this flow of change of consciousness is arising and passing away moment by moment to, through all the different senses, including through the mind. That's very different than the model of there's this consciousness in here. That's the, you know, we could say, well, that's who I really am to whom this is all happening. It's, it's more saying it's a flow of, of experiences, of conscious experience it's happening. There's no one to whom it's happening. That's a different view. Okay. So what he's saying is, it's all burning, and it's and burning with what? This translation, lust. Sometimes we use the word greed or lust. What that's saying is, it's that. Remember, we were talking about on the five. You can you can always refer back right up up there at the top of page two, under the five aggregates, the one feeling, which in Pali is Vedana. It's referring to. Wanting pleasant experiences, that hankering after pleasant, right? So they call it, lust is a strong word, but it would apply to, yes, strong wanting of lust, but even to um, uh, more mild, is still uh, leaning towards pleasant. And hate, these are euphemisms here, so hate is a strong word, but it just means dislike. You know, it's, if something pleasant arises, we want to get rid of Unpleasant arises, we want to get rid of it. We want to push it away. And then what can happen in between 
the delusion, if we have an experience that's what we call neutral, what can happen in those experiences, we can kind of space out or not be there. That's one way of viewing what's meant by delusion. And the other way that's meant by delusion is just not seeing the truth of what's going on. And, and that's the bigger way of understanding delusion. And that's what we're looking at all this morning about is trying to get more to the truth of what's going on. That would be what we understand. What's the real nature of our own being and of all experience? Just to help me with the bigger picture of this. So this word lust, is that the translation of tanha? Here, it's not. Is it chanda? Uh, we'll look at tanha later, which actually... Um, it's, it's a, the, it, look on the bottom of page three, and I've given you the poly here. It's actually the word raga. Oh, raga. Okay. And it's connected to... Um, um, so you might hear the word lobha. If, when we normally talk about what are called... The, this is an aside... For those of you who know what are called the three defilements or three kalesas, greed, hatred, and delusion, that uses a word lobha. In this list, it's different. It uses the word raka, but they're considered synonyms. Yeah. Right. Tanha is craving. We're gonna, or thirst, yes. Craving. We'll look at that in the, in the first discourse. Right. It's because of craving that that's really what's the generic Underlying, these are more breaking down the, the forms that craving can take. Yeah. So, let's pause for a moment. Reflect in your own experience. Is this true? I would propose that uh, as human beings, every one of us, I'm not judging anyone from doing this. I think it's the nature of being a living being. I don't think the Buddha's saying you're doing anything wrong. He's just pointing out what is what what the human condition entails. Every one of us, isn't it true that we want to have more of what you want in life or more experiences you want? For, forget these these uh, words with negative connotations like greed and lust and just just think. You want more experiences that you want in life, and you want to have less of the experiences, unpleasant experiences that you don't want in life. No one wants to have more of what you don't want, more unpleasant experiences, and less pleasant experiences, right? True for everyone? That's all it's pointing to. Right? So, uh, someone, when I was talking about this with someone, they came up and they said, well, wait a minute. What's wrong if I, like I, I happen from where I'm sitting right now, I can see through the store and there's a little bush out there. I see some little white flowers on it right now. I can see them. They're, they're kind of pretty. So when you look at that, notice the beauty. Right? Someone would say, what's wrong with seeing something beautiful, walking over to a beautiful flower, appreciating the beauty, smelling the beautiful smell? Is there something wrong with that? Would, is that what the Buddha is talking about when you see that beautiful? Isn't that a leaning towards the pleasant? So I want us to be careful to understand the context for this. I would say that in that example I'm using, I'm bringing this up in pur- on purpose because I want us to really take a look at what's it telling us, how is it asking us to live our lives? I think I think it would be true that if I see something beautiful, there is a 
it's, I don't think it's a problem, but I'm saying I think there is a, a pull towards the beauty. Something would draw me to walk over. You know, if it was a pile of, you know, if someone had walked their dog and it was dog poop on the sidewalk, I don't think I'd be pulled to go over to it. So there was something about the pleasant that did draw me towards it. So that process is happening. And I smell and appreciate. So you could say there's a little bit of the wanting there. However, I don't, in that example, I don't think it's a problem because it's not leading to a clinging. The problem, as we'll see when we look at the first discourse, it's the clinging that's the problem. I don't see it leaning, looking towards a, to a clinging. I let go of it and I move on. So I don't have to make a problem. So I don't think that these teachings, the way I hold them, is not trying to look in every little thing, well, is there a, and make our minds go crazy, well, is this a craving or something? I think it's trying to inform the, look to the places that create suffering. And so what I think it's asking us to do through our practice, whether it's meditation practice or whatever practices you're doing, to bring as much awareness to our experience as we can through all our senses and to notice when the mind's burning with, with greed, hatred, or delusion, or here, lust, hatred, hate, and delusion. And if we really see that that's true, we come to get that, wouldn't we want to free our minds from that as much as possible? So we start to notice on ever more subtle levels where there is some, some of these, this, this greed, hatred, and delusion happening. And the practice isn't to, to free the mind. And it's going to point to, well, what would that look like? Right? What would it look like to walk down the street and the flowers, you're still experience, all your experience is still happening. So you pass the beautiful flower, whatever it is, the pleasant or the, or the unpleasant experience. That's still going to happen. What would life look like if we still have our experience, but we're not being jerked around, if you will, by the, 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 these fires burning. If the fires have cooled out, that's going to be a koan for us, maybe for today or a question. What's life going to look like if the fires start to cool? Does it become dull? And you know, Do we become numb? I don't think so. One thought that comes to mind uh, about the burning uh, analogy or the burning simile is the idea that it's fuel. So all of these things that impinge our experience, whether it's through eye or ear or, or touch, those six sense doors are fuel if we have a wrong understanding about them, right? So the idea is that he's pointing out that these become fuels for greed, hatred, delusion, but changing our perception or our attitude towards them can allow the fires to cool, right? Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. That's right. And this idea of fuel um, is key, I think, to understanding the first noble truth also, as we'll see. Yeah, Ted. Very good. Um, I don't know this for sure, but... I'm kind of developing the idea that this lust, hate, and delusion is not tanha. This lust, hate, and delusion is wrong view. And it fits exactly with fuel. It fits with the fuel of ignorance, not the fuel. It, 
at Cravey. Um, and with right view, one could pass by the flower. Notice the beauty of the flower, I believe. I don't know. Uh, and have right intention and be walking the path. Yeah. With wrong view, if it turns out to be fuel, just like what you said, both of you said, then all of a sudden you have ignorance. You're on the wheel of samsara and you're involved with craving. Right. And one, one, from what you're both saying, uh, I, I just... It, I want to emphasize that what I'm hoping we'll, we're going to do with as we work through these suttas is it's this idea of how they're informing each other. All of these concepts are informing each other to create one teaching, one view, one dharma teaching. And so we want to keep in mind, going back to the characteristics here about... Um, impermanence, dukkha, this unreliable, unsatisfactory suffering, that uh, if I'm clinging after, if I'm burning with this, you know, we can really look at the strong cases. Uh, you know, I, I purposely brought up a subtler situation of, just, of the flower because I think it's important to inform. But we, we can start, we don't have to start there. We can just start with the strong cases. We can see when we're burning with, wanting, holding on, we've all experienced something pleasant, or if something unpleasant's going on and we're burning with, you know, if, if we're really not able to be at peace with this experience that's happening, what's going to happen? We're going to suffer. If we either got to be able to, if, if whatever's happening is either too strong for us, if it's that we're not able to be with it, we either have to find a way to bring the intensity down, or we have to find some way to, to be present with this experience in a way that's non-reactive. I think that when the fire is out, it's really talking about a place of non-reactivity. But we still have presence with our experience. And if we're not able to do that, well, we're going to suffer. So, yes. It seems like I got a lot of clarity about addiction. Addiction would be a, a, a strong example of this. Yeah. You know, it's not just walking past the flower. That's that's a really mm-hmm. powerful example. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, of course, I want to be very respectful when you talk about addiction to, you know, the real addictions. There's many addictions that we have. We think of substance abuse, and there's sex addiction, anything. But one. I, I want to, if I may, remaining respectful to that, uh, also uh, broaden that to say we're all addicts. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. The whole of Dharma teaching, one way it's summed up, is a liberation through non-clinging. Right. So this is something to keep in mind as we work through the morning. You know, really the whole point is is to cool these fires. You could think about that. So this also makes me think of dependent origination. That is, it starts in ignorance about the way these these perceptions come in and that it's the being aware of how we perceive 
can cha- can basically break that chain, right? Yeah, and um, just one moment. Um, so this, if if you many people here know dependent origination, if if it's not familiar with you. For you, we're not going to get into the details of that, but it's basically laying out a structure of it, 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 a, a core teaching is what is around conditionality and um, that, you know, things don't just happen for no cause or condition. And what we're really looking at here, for example, is the causes and conditions for suffering and for happiness. And and, you know, if we just looking at the cause of suffering, this burning and what. So we're looking at conditionality and this chain of dependent origination just just takes that in more uh, detail about how that process works. Yeah. Uh, Yes. And also, in this case, I think we're looking at right and wrong view. I don't think we're even on the wheel. In this case, he's talking to people who all they need is, I, I I could be wrong, all they need is one more element, and then they're enlightened. And the element is the wrong view. And the fuel that they have is for is feeding that wrong view. That's what throws them on the wheel. Right. And and then that changes perception as well. Right. You know. Well, we're going to look at exactly what you're saying in just a moment here. But what I want to say is, is that this idea of wrong, right and wrong view, if we could really get the get these teachings deeply, you could say that's what's needed, just a shift in the view. But but going back to conditionality, these patterns are deeply habituated in us. So for these practitioners, perhaps what you're saying is very true. If they were already deeply practiced, it didn't take much. And, you know, and, and we're going to look at what's called the group of five in a, in a bit, who are the, these five practitioners, and it didn't take much for them. Uh, so when we hear teachings like this, and when we, t- when we can look and see that, if we can see, well, this is true. This is what tends to drive my life is you know, wanting more pleasant in life and less unpleasant. And again, I'm not saying we're not going to we're going to stop taking care of ourselves in the world and living lives. I don't think this is the teaching saying that it's saying let's not be driven by these fires. And and so if we really get that and understand it deeply, we may say yes. And then but what's going to happen? You walk out the door and all it takes is the first whatever that next sense input comes in that happens to trigger off whatever the condition pattern of your mind is and we're right back in there and so it's like oh there's some work that needs to be done to untangle if you will or to it's in other words it's not just like a little fire where you know you put out your cigarette butt and it's out you know it's it's a big building here we you know we've got a five alarm fire going and it's going to take a while that that's what practice is about (laughs) Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to finish this sutta. We will take, I think we might take a break then. Um, But if you notice here, then uh, this continues. I I didn't, the the whole text is continued, just has dot, dot, dot. It says the ear is burning, sounds are burning. But that whole paragraph is repeated in the polytext. I've just summarized it here, but you get the idea. It's going through the six sense bases. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. And then at the top of page three, the sixth sense where the mind is burning. And the same thing here where it says ideas. It's just the contents of the mind, basically. So I think it's covered 
our whole range of experience, anything that can be known or experienced. I wonder if someone would read the second paragraph on at the top of page three, just that one paragraph. Victor, yes, please. I love this paragraph because it's the key to the to it all. Bhikkhus, when a nobler when when a noble follower who has heard the truth sees thus, he experiences disenchantment toward the eye, towards form, towards eye consciousness, towards eye contact, towards whatever feeling arises with eye contact, or it is indispensable condition, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, yeah. neutral. So let's just pause there. So this is getting into, you could say, right view. Or it could be that you've already started to cut through the delusion. And when we really, so, so the, way we, the way you do this is we, we reflect on it like we're doing today. We reread, we, so we get an intellectual understanding. We also start to reflect and look into our own experience and then the more we do practices that are self-awareness practices that, that uh, include, and most of you probably know this if you're uh, meditation practitioners, that's the ability of the mind to become more sta- steady. We sometimes call it concentration, but the ability of the mind to be clear and present and really clear and steady. And along with this, the mindfulness, the knowing of what's happening increases. We, we, we connect with our direct moment-to-moment experiences more deeply, more continuously. And we naturally become more aware. So we're, this, these are all the ways to which it says we see, we've, we, we experience, we know, we understand. It's saying if you really get this, we experience disenchantment. So I want to pause on uh, towards all these experiences. So I want to pause on this because this is a big, it's exactly what you're saying. It really gets to the core here. Uh, There's a note five there. If you turn to the top of page four, this word that I translated as disenchantment. There's there's this noun, nibida. In this text, it actually uses the verb nibindanti. And there's a range of ways it's translated. Um, If you read... For example, uh, you have this uh, Majjhima Nikaya here. I noticed this brown book um, that in that that's Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. He uses the word revulsion. So there's a range of meanings. Revulsion in English. I put the range here because we're going back to the Pali and it can be understood in, in, in different different shades in English. Are we saying uh, I, I don't care for that because I don't I don't I don't think. That's really what the meaning is here that I take. Um, look at the range of meanings of this word. Disenchantment, weariness, had enough. I like that one. But also disgust with worldly life, revulsion, but also tedium. You know, this is getting old. <laughs> so this had enough, uh, it's just like, it's, you know, being just in an unconscious, um, unconscious way. An unexamined way, just being led around by our desires, you know, it, gets, it can get old. Yeah. 
It's curious because all of these uh, translations are, are uh, reactive. As, um, because what I find striking is in that paragraph is basically the bhikkhus have seen have become disillusioned. Yeah. And through disillusionment, they are reacting to this is enough. This is right. Pleasant, this is yeah. Good. And just, yeah. But it, I, I think that the, the disenchantment, the reason. So the, when you if you look this up in uh, uh, on access to insight, I think he uses estrangement. Bhikkhu mm-hmm. Bodhi uses disench- uh, uh, revulsion, which what, who was that? Oh, he does there. OK, so he's changed his translation, because if you look at him in his um, um, Samyutta uh he uses revulsion. But let's think about the word that. Yeah. Buddhaghosa uses an example to explain disenchantment that does seem to be more reactive. And I'm not really a Buddhaghosa is a really respected person. Uh, let me just say it that way. Um, he uses an example of holding on to a snake, thinking it's a fish, and then all of a sudden realizing it's a snake. That seems to connect. Right. And if you realize you've got a snake, no one has to tell you to let it go, <laughs> right? Because it could, right? So, I, so that's why when I put the word disenchantment in here, oftentimes the word disenchantment, for, at least for some of us, can have the the connotation of meaning sort of let down or disappointed like you know i'm just i'm really disenchanted with something this can have a negative but the word actually to just means to not be enchanted and so what does it mean to have an enchantment you know in the fairy tales right they cast a spell on you you're, you're actually not in connection with reality anymore you're in and you're enchanted you don't see the way things really are so when we're disenchanted Chanted. We're waking up from the enchantment. This is this is this greed, hatred, and delusion. We're actually leading directly into freeing from the delusion. When we're not enchanted, we're actually just looking. It's, it doesn't have to be a negative or a positive connotation. It's just looking at how things really are. We look at the truth of well, what's what's it saying in this sutta? Is this really the way the mind is working? Right. We look at the three characteristics. Is it really true? We start to look to see, experience all this directly. And when we really get it, that experiences come and go about impermanence. If you really could live out of that truth. It can. Right. That's the disenchantment. If we skip down. So. So this is said here that. um, So disenchantment towards the eye and then you can see it's towards sounds, odors, flavors, tangibles, what you can experience in the body and towards the mind. Then uh, look down towards the bottom here. It says when he experiences disenchantment, it's he, you know, the text used. He was talking to to the bhikkhus there, but there were there were women practitioners, too. So don't it's, you know, it's for everyone. When he experiences disenchantment, he becomes dispassionate. That's when you actually see what's happening. It just this is getting back to conditionality. The what is a conditioning or supportive factor for breaking the enchantment is to see what this fire sermon's talking about, to really understand it. The more deeply we can do that, that we could say supports or conditions the mind to break out of the enchantment. And then it's saying here, breaking out of the enchantment, he becomes dispassionate. When we lose the enchantment, right? So what does it mean to be dispassionate? 
Um, I didn't copy the poly down here. Um, I meant to bring it with me, but I just forgot. So I, I don't remember the exact poly word that's there. Um, I can get it for you if you want. This, but I think it's a good translation of, as I recall, dispassionate. Um, we would think, well, don't we want to be passionate for life? Right? But I think that's what it's talking about. These passions or these fires that, he's, that are burning. Right? Yeah. I think it is Viraga. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're right about that. Yes. Um, I think what, what's helping me is looking at the word mesmerized. Because I, I have an experience and then I'm mesmerized by it. And from when I'm mesmerized, memorized, mesmerized. Yeah. It's like there's an enchantment. I'm in the enchanted force. Yes, portal. beautiful. And then, and then when I'm in the enchanted force, I'm actually not, I've actually dissociated associated myself from the actual experience and then I'm creating all these passions and lusts around that so and then that can be very painful yes because now I'm not even in the reality of what's going on and I've disconnected myself yes and so to give up that that passion of needing to be mesmerized but to release right. that so I like the word that I, I can quit fooling myself that's another great uh, term we could put on our list here. And in fact, what I'd like to ask you to do then is let's go back to that for a moment to dispassion. And if you look at the list at the top of page four of different, I just looked up a number of different translations for the word I could find. There may be more. And you're welcome to put your own in as you just did. Um, I would say all of these, even the ones like revulsion that can feel like it's tinged with some negativity, if you will, or maybe possibly tinged with some aversion, could be useful and skillful at different times or for different ones of us. So you want to see which one or which of these, either in general or it could shift from time to time, is going to be most useful and supportive for you. So we don't want to throw away revulsion because it could be if we're really caught in some, you know, clinging and lust, say, for example, and if it was causing us some real suffering there, it could be that bringing in some of the revulsion could be a good antidote in that particular situation, and but it doesn't mean that that would be the right attitude in every situation. So uh, it's really what is useful and skillful in the range of understandings there. Okay. So um, and then just to finish up, I'll just read this. So through dispassion, one is liberated. So that's the whole question of what does it look like to be liberated? And we're not going to spend time on that, but we certainly will. At least, in other words, what's the ultimate in Sanskrit nirvana or in Pali nibbana? That's not, just one moment. But um, we certainly can see that we're liberated from being slaves to lust, hate and delusion. That's something tangible that we could look to just in our lives, right? And so there's another question. What would life look like? And by the way, we all know the answer because we all have moments, probably lots of moments that we may not even notice them, 
when we're not, with whatever experience is going on, the heart and mind rest at peace. Not dependent upon this, the experience. So we've all experienced uh, a liberation. I, I like that idea of not being slaves to these passions. So. And then, of course, it has a happy ending. Uh, hearing this utterance, the hearts of those thousand bhikkhus were liberated from the taints. That's just, a, we won't talk about what the taints are, but those are the liberated through non-clinging. So, yes, go ahead, please. Yeah, I, um, I'm still thinking about uh, Victor's comment about the, um, the fact that disenchantment implies usually all these translations are some kind of a response or a reaction. Um, I think that points toward a couple of things. It points towards uh, the fact that it is our relationship, as you said earlier, to what's happening that is right view or wrong view or is liberative or clinging. Um, there's you know something experience happens and then it's the response that is is what can be freeing. And I wonder though also if it points toward. I mean, it, to me that says well is that. The whole point of life is that something happens and I respond to it wisely and that's all I'm going to do forever. I wonder if it points also towards a place where there's almost no need for a response. You just completely be or become what it is itself and that there's no this, not this extra step. There's, I always feel sometimes like mindfulness or response is this extra step being added on a second later when I could be experiencing what's happening at that yeah 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 am i making any sense here? well yeah i think you are making sense and i mean i appreciate what you're saying and um um, i mean i think that certainly is and can very well come into the process exactly what you're saying and so you know i would just leave it as uh, well i i know i don't want to say what what the experience of a mind that's freed from greed, hatred, and delusion would be. Right. I'm wondering if when you were talking about that, we've all experienced this, right? And isn't it that the heart being at ease, in other words, when the heart's not at ease is when we're experiencing dukkha or when these when we're caught in greed, hatred, delusion. And the idea is that when we're at ease, there is no fire burning. The concept of ease is still conditional. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think the idea is that there's no movement towards, right? Or the idea of dip- dispassion there's there's no movement towards or away from but it's just being at rest you may be using the term ease in different two different ways here also but no and actually this is a great segue i mean we can right yeah yeah so uh just one moment sir uh i think um that uh we can still spend some time on this we're going to take a break in just a few minutes but when we come back to the next sutta i think about no self I think this is a perfect segue uh, into that because because this sutta I think is informing now when we come back to this next one 
Um, and so anyway. Uh, what does the word mean? Taint? Yeah. So um, basically in this particular model, in this system, that's what's in poly languages called asavas, which has a number of translations, taints, and, and it's basically qualities in the mind that keep us stuck in suffering. <laughs> just one other thing. I, I have a problem with the word disenchantment also. It's just when I look at Buddhaghosa saying something powerful, Namoli saying something powerful, and Bhikkhu Bodhi saying something powerful, it makes me think that it's a little more than just letting go, um, what they're thinking about. Well, you could think of it this way. Um, I think that the, the sense of it is is that it it um, it just breaks the illusion, if you will, or able to just see more directly or experience more directly. Yeah, yeah. Mesmerized was good. I don't know to be uh, de dismesmerized, <laughs> but it was great. We need to get a good way and put that on the list too. And it's really which understanding leads us towards the dispassion and to the liberation. Yes? I just wanted to point out that the poets say there is no other. So you're saying the poets say there is no other. Right. Well, so that's a, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> right. But. This model is, when you talk about is no other, we'll just say this particular sixth sense based model is not saying this between self and other. It's taking that out, that there's simply sense, sense receptor, receptor, sense organ, the what object, and then there is just this experience of visual or whatever sense door it is, a consciousness happening. So if you want to get, I don't want to get into that non-dual versus dual kind of thing, but that's pointing in that direction. Did somebody else have, did you have your hand up? Yes. For me, I think it's important to recognize that the way that our brain works, to me, the way that our brain works, we're going to each need some different words because we've each had different past experiences. And what I've learned, I can't try to put my word onto you. Because that's what's actually going to cause the trouble, my putting my word onto you. And we're translating all these ancient languages and different languages into English, which dissects things, tries to dissect it down to a pinpoint to make everything known, which doesn't really work on a certain level. Because it's like looking at Asian languages. There's actually, you know, you look at a a carriage, Japanese or Chinese character, it has so much informed in it where our words don't have that. So uh, to me, what I've been trying to learn as I go deeper into the study is just recognizing there's are these different words. What's the flavor that I keep finding? And maybe one word works for me that, but there's a flavor inside of this that I don't have to grab the whole word because then then I'm back into the... The inclining, I climb this way, I, someone right. else inclines that way, and right. then there's, there's no connection yeah. there. Well, I appreciate that, and I would actually extend that even more, not just to understand these, the concepts, but 
even when we take it down to actual practices we do, the reason there's a range of practices, just like there's a range of meanings and words here, is because what's most useful and skillful for each of us, it's not the same. There's not just one way to practice or one best or right way, just like there's not one best take on the words here. So thank you. Yeah. So what we'll do is um, we're going to take a break. Um, at least 10 minutes, maybe 15, and then we'll come back. Um, I think what we've done now is laid a good groundwork. The next sutta we're going to do, probably move a little faster through it and then really spend the remaining time on the final discourse on the Four Noble Truths.